And now, a presentation on the Mental Health News Radio Network. The Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Ryan, that is a freaking awesome question. You are the power, and you do not need anybody's permission. He's the only guy that ever crawled out of a grave where people didn't go, oh, ah! Don't worry, don't be afraid, ever, because this is just a ride. You're, you're a great interviewer. You're one of the best. If this is the best God can do, I am not impressed. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Out of Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Outoflimitsradio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Tonight, you are going to learn a very special power, a very special liberation. Our featured guest is the Rebel Among Rebels. A free thinker, a critical thinker, and an excellent teacher. In fact, I listen to his podcasts on a regular basis. And he is going to teach you some perspectives on life that you probably wouldn't know before. And he'll explain them in a very concise manner. It's all about personal liberation. It's all about being liberated from this atrocious and dangerous superstition known as authority. Let us begin tonight's show. It is a great honor, and I mean a great honor, to welcome to the program Mr. Larkin Rose. He is author of several books, including The Most Dangerous Superstition, which I highly recommend everyone get, the novel The Iron Web. He's been an outspoken advocate of the principles of self-ownership and non-aggression. He also has an incredible new program called Candles in the Dark which will teach you how to engage individuals that are all for statism. You can learn more about Larkin by going to attendcandles.com. He's also going to be appearing at an event, I wish I could say the name, called Anarcholopo or something. It's A-N-A-R-C-H-A-P-U-L-C-O. We'll put some information. You can visit him next year. Also, Larkin has a podcast on ConnectPal, and look them up on LarkinRose.com, which I listen to every day. It's incredible. Mr. Rose, welcome to our show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Thank you. So a couple months ago, I put out some information about you. I took a series of your quotes, and I sent it out to my family and friends. When I try to engage them about what's going on in civil liberties, they don't really respond. But wow, did they respond, and they were upset, and they were furious, and I loved it. I'm like, wow. This is a guy who knows how to get a reaction out of people. So um, thank you. And what do you? What are some of the foundation of your philosophy as far as the benefits of anarchism? When people say anarchy, they think it's going to be Mad Max and lawlessness and craziness. What is your perspective on what anarchy is? Well, it's sort of funny because what I advocate is actually what almost everybody advocates except that they then give an exception to government. In other words, I advocate don't beat people up, don't steal their stuff. Like you own yourself and every other person owns himself, so you shouldn't beat them up and take their stuff. And and all human interaction should be voluntary and based on consent, not on coercion and violence. And if you describe it that way to the average person, they go, well, yeah, yeah, of course, duh. I believe that too, only they don't. Because they think when it comes to to government and quote unquote law and authority, 
well, those guys magically have an exemption from morality and somehow they're allowed to demand money from us even if we didn't agree to it and they're allowed to boss us around and control our choices and our options and forcibly hurt us if we disobey whatever arbitrary whims they decide to call law. So my my philosophy, it's almost funny to me to even call it a philosophy because it's just sort of so obvious, but my philosophy is basically take what you already know about human morality and apply it to everybody. Stop pretending that people with badges and uniforms or people who are called lawmakers have an exemption. They don't. And that's really all it is. It's not some super sophisticated, weird, complex theory of this and that and the other thing. It's just don't attack other people and don't vote for somebody else to attack other people. It basically just boils down to that. I know some people are saying, well, we need to have some type of government. Otherwise, the world would go crazy. And I don't agree with that at all. I think that if you go and you go to a store, you go to malls, most people conduct themselves. And you don't need somebody policing or bossing other people around. So hypothetically speaking, if we were to have a world without the belief in authority, how would we be able to, what kind of world would you envision for that? And how would people who we consider thugs, rapists, murderers, how would they be dealt with by the general public? Well, see, one of the biggest challenges of people, you know, pondering voluntarism or, or anarchism or whatever term you want to use for it is that because they've never seen it, because they've grown up in a world where there's a ruling class and it, it takes our money and it does a bunch of stuff, they have a hard time picturing, well, what would it look like without that? And, and I compare it to the fact that, you know, if, if somebody grew up in the Soviet Union where government controls and monitors everything and, you know, it either feeds you or you starve, mostly you starve. Um, if that's what you're used to and somebody comes along and says, let's do away with government, I would understand it if those people think, but then we won't have any food. And they don't realize that, no, government's the thing in the way. So the one of the main problems of getting people to to see what anarchism really means is that they assume that if government does something, then removing government means nobody does that thing anymore. So they're like, but how will there be roads and, and schools and this and that and the other thing? Nothing about anarchism or voluntarism says that we can't cooperate and we can't organize and we can't have sophisticated, you know, types of communication and trade and all sorts of things, all it says, the only thing it removes from society is the notion that some people get to violently force their ideas on everybody else. And that's all. There, there's a thousand ways to organize things and arrange things and, and deal with things. And so using the example that, that you brought up, if there's some you know dangerous psycho going around abusing people, then we as normal human beings, like actual grownups, Instead of running off to big daddy government or big mommy government and saying, help, help, we think, all right, what are we going to do about it? What are we as normal people justified in doing about this, you know, serial killer running around killing people? And we pretty quickly realize, well, we have the right to stop him by whatever means necessary, even if that, you know, requires killing the guy, if he's a, you know, psycho serial killer. The problem is that people have been trained to be irresponsible. 
So they actually don't like the idea of a society in which we, the normal people, actually have to figure out problems. They want to act like children and think like children and call 911 and have the authorities handle everything. And they don't realize that in the long run, that is a thousand times worse than actually acting like a grown-up. So when somebody asked me, well, what would happen in, you know, under anarchy, what would happen if somebody's going around? My first question is, well, what would you do about it? Like, I can tell you what I would do. I can guess what other people would do, but you're one of us. Like, I'm not going to be the emperor of anarchy. What would you do about it if there's a serial killer running around? And to get them to start to think in the direction of a responsible grown-up instead of a subject of a ruling class. Well, I agree with what you said, and I wish that people were more responsible. I don't understand why in, in America, maybe just because I live in America, that people seem to be part of this anti-intellectualism, and or they just seem that they want the government to take care of them and do everything, and now they're pushing for words to be censored. And I think it's really becoming hardcore tyranny. You did that one video about the red flag laws, and that was very alarming. But why do you think things have gotten to this point, and what do you think would actually turn things around quickly to people who are more responsible? When people are stupid and or irresponsible or (laughs) things like that, It's usually a combination of, you know, sometimes just people can be lazy. That's part of it. But a far bigger part is that we are literally trained to be irresponsible and stupid. When you go into the, you know, what passes for schools and they, you know, presumably they're there to teach reading and writing and arithmetic and this and that. The other thing, mostly what they teach is mental dependence and obedience to authority. When you're in the classroom as a kid sitting at a desk, what you learn over and over and over again is your life isn't up to you. You're supposed to do as you're told and obey, and that's the measure of whether you're a good person. You're not supposed to solve your own problems. You don't even get to decide what you're supposed to be thinking about. Like the teacher will tell you for the next 30 minutes, here is what you are thinking about. And so when people go through that for years and years and years, and then they get sort of released from prison, they get let out into the real world, they seriously have no experience running their own lives or thinking like responsible people. The, all the experience they've had is in a setting where all they can do is whine to the authority figure to do something for them, which may or may not happen, but they learn how to whine instead of problem solving, instead of talking to other people and figuring out, you know, consent and consensus and how to solve problems. So when they get into the real world, they've had zero practice of being an actual human being. And so what do they do? They immediately turn around and want a government to take a place of the teacher and have somebody else they can whine to, to fix all their problems and make society right. And, oh, these people are saying words I don't like, make them not do that. It's because the whole system and authoritarian in general, authoritarianism in general, trains people to forever be stupid, irresponsible children. And it works. (laughs) And you can see it by how so many people are so eager to run to government to force everyone else to, to say what, you know, say and do and think what that person approves of and nothing else. Like, Big daddy government, make sure everybody else is doing what I approve of. 
instead of acting like a grown up and realizing, well, I'll run my life and you run your life. And like, if you attack me, I'll defend myself. But otherwise, we're actually we're we're sovereigns. I, I sort of hate that term because the sovereign citizen movement kind of butchered it. <laughs> but before that, the, the word was a, a useful word. Sovereign. It means nothing is above me. I'm I'm one of the people at the top. And so are you. And we all are. But people have been trained to not think that way. They've been trained to think like helpless subjects and the training works. I wonder if it, if it is in total alignment with various organized religions because I used to be very religious and I remember at one point I always felt that there was some God above me or there were people above me. And now looking back on it, I'm so glad I was able to break out of it and escape that. But if people are not, if they're going to school and they're learning to submit their will to authority and then they're going to their religious institutions and they're, they're feeling that, okay, I've sinned or I'm going to hell and all this other stuff, do you think that the belief in authority and the belief in organized religion are one and the same and that if you shatter the belief in the superstition and authority, that belief in religious and other commonly held spiritual practices will soon follow? In a lot of organized religion, I would say they are they are definitely the same thing, and uh, authoritarianism is is in both. I mean, once upon a time, the big gang that claimed the right to rule was the church, and now it calls itself government. It's the same thing. It's the same group of crooks. Now, there is one distinction I'd mention, which is that uh, it is possible to believe in a higher power and, and spiritual stuff and not view it as a big bossy guy in the sky who's going to stomp on you if you disobey him, but but believe in like an actually caring creator or whatever. And I don't, I don't believe in what most people call God, but at least it is possible to believe in a non-authoritarian creator of the universe. And I'm actually really happy by how much I've seen in recent years when I ask people who are religious – well, which God do you believe in? Do you believe in a God who says, here's what you're going to do, this, 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 and this, and I'm hurling you into eternal fire if you disobey? In other words, do you believe in the authoritarian one? Or do you believe in a God who's saying, if you want to be happy and fulfilled, here is what you should do? And I've seen a big shift, even among religious people, in the direction of, heck with that weird, organized, authoritarian garbage, I believe in an actually loving God. And for those people, I don't care if I believe in the God they believe in. I know we can peacefully coexist because they aren't of the authoritarian mindset. So it is possible to to be religious and not authoritarian, but definitely organized religions have just been, you know, historically have just been another version of authoritarian domination. Definitely agree with you on that one. And okay, I'm curious, what does your moral core and wisdom come from? Are you a spiritual person? Do you meditate? Do you do anything on that level? And just curious where you get your wisdom from. It's funny because people use the word spiritual in so many different ways. It's something I don't usually talk about in public just because I don't care if other people believe in that. Um, the way I would use the term, I would say, yes, I am a spiritual person. I don't believe in, in what most people call God, but I definitely believe there is there is intention in the universe and that human beings are supposed to be a certain way and killing and eating each other is not the way <laughs> we're supposed to be. Um, so I do, I do definitely believe in, in, 
um, a higher power, if you want to call it that, even though I don't picture it as big guy in the sky with switches and levers making things happen. <laughs> um, but I definitely think there is such a thing as right and wrong. I, I don't think it's just personal opinions. I don't think we're just dead machines crashing around and just we have our own random preferences. But there really isn't such a thing as what you should and shouldn't do. Um, I think there is just an infinite amount of design and intention built into the universe at every level. Um, and like I said, I don't usually talk about that stuff in public just because then I just end up arguing. Oh, I appreciate it. No, because you know, this what, when we talk on our program, it, we, there's no judgment at all. And there's all <laughs> about, you know, exploring consciousness. I noticed at that event, I did not, is it the name of it called Anarcha Opal? I can't, I wish I could say the name of it. Anarcha, Anarcha Chipola, what the heck is that? How do you say that? Something like that. It's Anarchapulco. Okay. It's what an I'm anarchist going... event that happens in Acapulco, but okay. it is, it takes a few tries to get it pronounced right. But I, I'm, I'm on there and I see a couple of things. And one of the things I noticed is that they're, when they have these ceremonies, it looks like they're doing ayahuasca. And that's something that we, had done before and we talked a lot about it on our show before so it seems like there's a, a very big spiritual component to that and from your perspective when you engage other individuals that are that are for freedom that are not in line with infringing upon others do you see a um, individuals that are kind of when you say see the word more advanced but more passionate about their own development more passionate about learning or passionate about curiosity, is there certain qualities and characteristics that you tend to notice about individuals that are on this path of total freedom and respect for others? Yeah, there's sort of there's sort of two categories I would point to. One is just anybody I think I can peacefully coexist with, which is anybody who opposes the initiation of violence. And that can be people who in a lot of different ways have completely different priorities or, or beliefs than I do. We just both understand don't attack each other. But as far as people I actually like like to talk to and, and, and hang out with, um, it's definitely more a crowd who likes to think more about, you know, deeper stuff and spiritual stuff and and including people who theorize about stuff I don't even believe in. But it at least makes the discussions interesting. And, yeah, there's a big I mean, there are so many different kinds of people that that go to Anarchapulco, some who are materialist, almost bordering on nihilist. And some who are very into to spiritual stuff and and all that. And so there's but they all get along because <laughs> none of them want authoritarian domination. But as for the people I tend to, to, you know, actually, you know, have long, interesting discussions with. Um, yeah, they definitely it has to be more than just don't attack your neighbor. I mean, that, that's sort of the starting point that this isn't like the end of figuring out the whole universe. This is the starting point. If you can't get to don't attack your neighbor, we kind of can't get anywhere. But there's plenty to discuss after don't attack your neighbor. It seems like such a simplistic idea. It, it seems such a simplistic idea. I mean, Ron Paul has been talking about it for a long time. And and people, I, think, remember, I remember one debate in 2008 where he said, remember the golden rule, and he was getting booed. And it made me something like, like, I wonder what is wrong with people. I don't understand why people don't understand the simplicity of it, to be respectful of it. And I'm just curious. Well, well again, they've been, they've been indoctrinated into believing that, that government and its authority are legitimate and that playing the game is what you're supposed to do. Not only are you supposed to like 
pay your taxes and obey the law and do whatever the ruling class tells you to, but you're supposed to engage in the ridiculous divide and conquer game that is politics and go and run to the politicians and beg them to force your priorities and values onto everybody else while everybody else begs them to force theirs on you. And so when somebody says, how about if we don't play that game at all and you just like live by the golden rule and, you know, <laughs> live and let live, however you want to phrase it, people who are politically active tend to go, no, that, that'll never work. That's utopian or, or something or other. And they're made uncomfortable by the idea of peaceful coexistence because they're so attached to the mythology of politics and authoritarianism that they, they have this weird gut reaction at the thought of actual freedom. <laughs> well, I believe that one of you, I believe that you've said this before, that you said that it takes only a small number of driven individuals who love freedom to, success, to successfully upend the tyrannical state. And, uh, that being said, does the minority who comprises the tyrannical state not incorporate the same methods to successfully upend the population, which greatly outnumbers it? Uh, well, there's a big difference, which is that the reason that small minority of, you know, psychopathic control freaks, the reason they have their power is not by way of their own malice and, and devious plans. It's by way of the belief systems of their victims. If their victims stopped imagining those control freaks to be a legitimate authority, stopped imagining they have the right to rule and stop imagining that the rest of us have some obligation to obey them, those control freaks literally have no power. Even their enforcers are, are us. It's just some of us who were dumb enough to think that, oh, if I put a badge and a, a uniform on, then I'm magically some righteous enforcer of this magical thing called law, and whatever aggression I use, as long as the politicians approve of it, must be justified. So it, the enemy is in our own head. And the, the good news is the solution is also in our own head. If the belief in authority among the people goes away, those sociopaths have no power left. It's not like we would put up with this if, you know, the tiny little less than 1% of the population just said, we're going to rule you by brute force. The rest of us would say, no, you're not. We have more guns than you. We 399 million guns in the U.S., yeah. Yeah. You think anybody could forcibly subjugate that without first convincing those people they have an obligation to obey? And I've said before, the one gang in the world that has the, the power to subjugate the American people already did by convincing them that it, the oppressor, is a legitimate authority. And you know, I look at America right now and I, I get really worrisome because I see it becoming more and more tyrannical and then I see people not caring I mean no one gets outraged no anger about the decimation of civil liberties they just care what's on TV I'm wondering why that it's happening why people are not more outraged and also if you look at the birth and death cycle of nations I'm wondering what some of the more common reasons why they, they rise and fall what do you see as a long term outlook for the US well I think it's it's already an empire in decline and one of the biggest problems is that people are so horrendously bad at being objective, like whatever they're accustomed to putting up with, they sort of view that as normal and tolerable. So if the politicians just make it 1% worse each year, 
people go, oh, well, this is only a little bit worse than it was last year. So I'll put up with it. It's the, it's the boiled frog <laughs> thing. And so they they really have no objective notion of morality, which is where voluntarism comes in. It says it's not like taxing somebody as in stealing their money at 43.2% is good, but 43.3% is suddenly evil. It's you don't get to take anybody's money without their consent. Like it's an actual principle instead of what all of politics is, which is bickering over the details of how much the rulers should dominate and rob the rest of us. And when someone's grown up to believe that, well, this is how it is, this is how it has to be, this is legitimate, then of course a lot of them are going to get apathetic and just sort of resign to, oh, well, like basically you've trained them to be human livestock. So they think this is my life as human livestock. And and, you know, they can be happy that, well, it's sort of my pasture is sort of comfortable and I have a TV in it. So whatever. And it's only those who, who can, you know, back up from the, you know, the current day and age and situation and say, is this anywhere near what it should be? Or are we just going along with it because it's what we're used to? Because whatever people get comfortable with and whatever is familiar, they'll put up with the vast majority of them. It's only when when somebody can actually back up and question. And this was true of outright slavery. A lot of people who were all the way slaves were raised to believe that that's just how it is and how it should be. And it took an extra mental effort, you know, like Frederick Douglass being one shining example of someone who figured out, you know, I don't really think this is how things should be. <laughs> And imagine the frustration if you were in his place of being surrounded by a bunch of people and having most of them think, no, this is how things should be. And you're the troublemaker for saying that the master doesn't rightfully own you. And if you try to run away, you're stealing from the master. You're stealing yourself from the master. And some of them really thought that way because that's what they were surrounded with and it's what they were raised to believe. And now we're just raised to believe a slightly different variation known as statism which says, well, of course we have to pay taxes and obey the ruling class, and of course we need government and authority and all that. And if you're one of those people who doesn't like that, well, then you're just a nasty, scary criminal. It's like, no, maybe you're just one of the people who can back up and objectively look at the situation and realize none of this is okay. And I want to give everyone a quick reminder that Larkin has a great new program called Candles in the Dark, and the website's called AttendCandles.com. Larkin, can you please talk a little bit about your program and what you hope to accomplish with it? Yeah, I've been a voluntarist now for 23 years. And having tried to talk to, you know, the, the well-indoctrinated general public <laughs> for all that time, I've come to realize the problem is not the philosophical difference, because like you said before, the actual principles are ridiculously simple. It's like, don't you own yourself, don't attack other people, don't steal their stuff. Like it's any five-year-old should understand this almost just instinctively. The problem with communicating it is that the other people have been indoctrinated into this, and that makes a gigantic psychological hurdle to them actually hearing the message. And so over the years, I've accidentally acquired um, a bunch of understanding about human psychology and communications and how people instinctively react to things that threaten their paradigm, threaten what they already believe. 
And it's it's kind of unfortunate that we even have to deal with that. Like, I wish the human race was such that you can say, all right, here's the evidence, here's the logic, two plus two equals four. And they'd go, oh, okay, I see your point. Good, now I'm on your side. It doesn't work that way. So Candles in the Dark was designed around a an understanding of psychology and the fact that if you don't know how to keep your own psychology intact and you don't know how to sort of get around the minefield of the psychology of the person you're talking to, then even the most well-articulated, simple principles will still just result in the other person freaking out and having a tantrum and getting mad at you or running away or something. So it teaches people how to use a method that doesn't come naturally to anybody. It didn't come naturally to me, but it's a method that has a way, way higher success rate at actually having the other person hear the ideas and think about them without it becoming an argument, without there being stress, um, which, by the way, makes it a lot more fun for the voluntarists, too, because, you know, I know from personal experience and lots of others do, it's frustrating and stressful and annoying trying to tell other people they should be free and having them scream at you and say that would be the end of the world. Um, so this is this is a very different method. And for all those people who said, oh, I've tried everything, you know, my my relatives, my, you know, coworkers, whatever, they just, there's no way to get through them. I've tried everything. I promise you, you haven't tried this. If you're saying nothing will work, you have not tried the method that, that over many years we've developed and then put into the, the seminar candles in the dark, because it is a completely different approach. It does require some time and effort to train yourself to have a different approach, but the results are just amazingly different and a bunch of people are now seeing that by using it i'm enjoying it very much and i want to let everyone know that i, I mean i love this program and logging on our show before we've talked about not reaching out to the masses you know maybe we'll wake up some of the masses but getting them getting the minority and making them warriors and you know getting as strong as you possibly can be so i highly recommend everyone check out your program i'm curious how did you get to where you are right now in terms of your philosophy because when i was growing up i have had pictures of me with a crucifix around and I'm hanging out with cops. I used to get pictures with cops, and those. And now I'm like, I, mean, I wouldn't do any of that stuff. I'm, my mindset's completely different. And I became awakened because of a lot of pain, a lot of pain and ang agony, and realization that the, the things I thought were real were not. And so I'm curious, how did you get to your point? How did you become a person who accepted one form of the state, or was actually even supporting Ross Perot at one point to to get to where you are right now? Yeah, I was raised basically conservative, kind of constitutionalist, right-leaning statist, um, sort of minarchist, like we didn't want a big state, but we just need a military and a police and yada, yada, yada. And the thing is, I like to debate and I like to argue and I like to think about stuff. And the trouble is, when I argued from that premise, I would notice that I'm kind of being a hypocrite. Like if I argue that no, it's totally immoral for you to take my money to fund some welfare state against my will. But for some weird reason, it's perfectly OK for me to vote for a government to take your money and pay for a military because I think it's important. And I realized eh, it doesn't really add up. And so it was really just a matter of whittling down my own position on government until it was actually consistent and based on moral principles and when I did that, I noticed I had accidentally whittled down legitimate government to nothing, <laughs> that it, it literally wasn't <laughs> government anymore. It's funny because I recently posted a video called um, Legitimate Government with a question mark on the end 
um, where I, 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 I won't even spoil it. I read from a thing that, that, that I read many years ago, um, arguing in favor of this minimal protector government. And so I, I argue back and forth against it, but that, that very much shows sort of where I came from and how eventually I just, I, I couldn't dodge the fact that to have any political beliefs, because I, I refer to anarchism as anti-political, to have any political beliefs, you have to have contradictions inside your own head. And incidentally, that's the only reason Candles in the Dark works, is because nobody can believe in government at all without being schizophrenic and having contradictions inside their own heads. It's just most of us didn't realize that when we had those beliefs or when we still have those beliefs. And Candles in the Dark teaches you how to gently take someone along the path where they see the contradiction in their own head and then they have to figure out what to do about it. And what have been some of the books that have really changed your perspective or helped you to grow as a person? And are there any types of teachers and mentors that you learned a lot from that really helped you to become the person you are today? There are, there are a bunch of scattered things here and there, and it's there isn't like one or two I can really credit with. I guess the closest to that would be uh, The Discovery of Freedom by Rose Wilder Lane, um, who is the daughter of Laura Ingalls Wilder of Little House on the Prairie fame. Um, and she came closest to, in her book, Discovery of Freedom, I think it's subtitled Man's Struggle Against Authority, to basically describing the fact that freedom and self-ownership is what is, and all of the political authority is an illusion and it's a lie. She didn't quite say it like that. She didn't quite say it the way I do, but she was one who, who pushed me in the direction of seeing this isn't just a matter of choosing whether A works better or B works better. It's coming to the realization that B is impossible. It's logically impossible. It's philosophically impossible. And that's how I got there, by not by deciding that things would work better without a government than they would with, but by figuring out there is no situation in which government can even be legitimate. So she came close to doing that. And of course, there was um, like Albert J. Nock wrote Our Enemy the State, which I read a gazillion years ago, and, and The Law by, by Frederick Bastiat. But I think there's also a bunch of like, so there's a bunch of philosophical books about it, but I think there's also a bunch of things that are more even even fiction and they're more just instinctive and i think i think tolkien's lord of the rings the books i mean the movies are cool too but the books are some of the most brilliantly written anti-authoritarian philosophy there is even though later he said he was basically an anarchist but i think that was after he wrote the books but it shows it not so much in a philosophical way but just you instinctively learn it and there are so many things in our culture, it, it's weird because there are so many things in our culture that celebrate the underdog resisting the illegitimate authority. And then there's other stuff that says, but you have to obey the law and pay your taxes. But I think there's a lot of influences on a lot of people that still push in the direction of disobedience to authority. There's, they're just sort of up against all the, the, the obedience training that we go through. So, I mean, a million different things influenced my 
you know, the, the journey that I slowly staggered through. <laughs> and, and now pretty much everything I do is to try to make other people able to go through that journey in a faster, less awkward, stupid way than it took me. <laughs> well, I appreciate the work that you're doing. And again, one of your videos that I really responded to was the one you talked about the red flag laws about how the U.S. may be really getting getting so dark and you may have you know the idea that the government can disarm you or could throw you in jail without ever have becoming a trial I mean it's just it's just getting a lot worse and I'm wondering what do you recommend to people who are fully aware of their freedom that would love freedom that respect freedom that want these people to more or less you know piss off there's this quote that I remember reading there's a gentleman's he said that the felon is only the felon does not fear the police. The felon the felon does not fear a judge or jury. The felon must be taught to fear his victim. Put in that perspective, how do you make people that want to infringe upon you be afraid of you? How do you get them to, to, to piss off? And it, yeah, and know? there's there there's several options, and and it's the same to me. Whether the attacker has a badge or not is 100 percent irrelevant. Like, like there's several options. If you know somebody's going to come attack you, one is, you know, run and hide or move to a different neighborhood. One is obviously learn to defend yourself. Now, the state is so huge and violent now that that's, you know, pretty hazardous to most people's health to try to do that, which is one of the reasons why my focus is on getting more people to understand this, because it's it's a numbers game. I've said a million times it's a numbers game. The more of us who understand freedom, the easier and less ugly the transition will be from this statist garbage to an actually free society. But in the meantime, we have to deal with the fact that, you know, we as this small minority of the population are going to be, you know, if they if they have the chance, we're going to be robbed and controlled and bossed around by control freaks. I do think it's very helpful to for people to form networks of other people they trust and like there's a there's a black market growing in this country it, it's so ridiculous that it's called the black market like there's <laughs> something shady and scary about voluntarily trading with other people without giving a cut to the politicians like there's nothing wrong with that um but the more people network and the more they you know they know other people who will help protect them and and stuff but the thing is the desperation of things like the red flag laws and their their attempts at gun control, which weirdly I think that's actually a good sign. That shows me not that they're not that the people in power are feeling powerful and secure, but they're scared. They're scared out of their gourds because they see too many people waking up. So they're trying to jump to totalitarianism. And the thing is, I think we're going to start seeing seeing more and more instances where people actually do say, all right, this is where I draw the line. We are going to resist now. And we actually saw one at the the Bundy Ranch, um, the, even though, you know, they weren't anarchists and stuff. And but where a bunch of people said, yeah, we're just not going to let you do this. And a bunch of people with guns showed up and the Fed said, mm, maybe we'll try this later. Bye. Um, and I think we're going to see more and more of that. And some of them are going to turn really dang ugly because people with power don't tend to give it up willingly. And but sometimes control freaks actually back off when they realize, all right, trying to do this by brute force isn't going to end well for the tyrants. It isn't going to end well for anybody because there'll be bloodshed on both sides. But the, the tyrants, mostly they huff and puff. 
if they outnumber you and there's one person saying, I will resist, and a hundred mindless order obeyers saying, well, we're going to crush you, he'll probably get crushed. But when you get into the hundreds and thousands or tens of thousands or millions of people that realize we're not beholden to these crooks, we don't have an obligation to obey, and hey, look, we have guns, <laughs> then disobedience actually works. And, and one of the most ironic things is, and this is true about common criminals too, often the presence, the, the good guy having a gun reduces the violence because when the, you know, the, the psycho decides to attack somebody and he goes, whoops, you have a gun, bye. Like it results in no violence. It results in the guy running away. And if enough people believe in freedom and are armed, in a lot of cases, it can actually result in the control freaks as much as they want power, realizing we don't want this fight because this will end very badly for us. Never mind, we'll back off for now and eventually make them back off forever um, just by the deterrent of knowing that, yes, at some point we will draw a line and say, this we're not going to put up with. And, you know, it's an individual thing. Everybody decides for themselves where they're going to draw those lines or whether they're going to draw lines at all. And most people don't seem to have much of a line. They'll put up with almost anything. Put up a but there are some too who say, yeah, you're not going to disarm me. That's my line. Or you're not going to take my kid. That's my line. And I have a few lines of my own. Um, but it's... What's your biggest line? Um, well, I won't be disarmed. Um, the I may like hide them <laughs> if they tried or something. I may sneak <laughs> to get around them. But ultimately, I won't give up my means of, of defense because you give up that, you just gave up everything because then they can do whatever they want to you. Um, and I do have a daughter. She's now a grown adult. But if they had tried to take her for some reason, um, that would have been a line. That's not going to happen without things getting very ugly. Um, and the only other one, which I've said before, I'll say it again. I don't mind saying it in public. The day I don't dare to say what I believe in public is the day they should start worrying about me. Because if I can't speak anymore and feel safe doing so, then I'm going to resort to using force to try to undo what they have. Um, as long as I can try to use words, I'm just going to do that. But uh, a, they're, they're yeah. trying hard to make that you know harder and harder. Yeah, I, big tech. You know, the, the people always talk about the, the government becoming more tyrannical. But I also think it's these, this tech industry like Google, Facebook, and those other places. Because what they're doing is that they're just taking people they don't agree with, and they're saying, "Well, you know, they're saying you know racist things, and they're saying things that they hate speech, and they're, they're platforming them, and they're, they're shutting them down." And I'm wondering if the, the government's trying to impose a tyranny through them by saying, "Well, look, it's not us; it's a private company. We can't do anything about that." So, yeah, just, absolutely. And they, I mean. Facebook and YouTube already do that to me. I mean, they do it to a gazillion people. This is not at all unique. Um, but I've, you know, YouTube has already age restricted a couple of my videos that there was no reason for that. One is called When Should You Shoot a Cop? And one is called It Can't Happen Here. Um, and they just don't like them. So they just made up that ah, we can't have that. So we'll just make it so lots of the audience can't see it. They suppress the Facebook suppresses the hell out of my posts and makes the, like, I have 22,000 and some subscribers on Facebook, and only the tiniest percentage ever see anything I post. Like, mm, slightly suspicious there. So yeah, they can, they can do a lot in controlling the spread of information without doing outright censorship, without saying, you're not allowed to say that or we put you in a cage, but just by controlling these platforms. Like, they build the platforms and then almost everybody is on them, 
And then they can say, well, we're going to sort of make these algorithms spread all the things we want to have spread and, you know, suppress all the things we don't want people to hear about. And so they've been doing that a lot. The thing is the the technology and the geeks are going to kick their butt on that anyway. Like like all the blockchain stuff, all the <laughs> all the other places will eventually grow and replace these sort of centralized controlled Pravda West things like like Facebook. And so now there's Float F L O T E. Um I've only just heard about it. I actually know the people who started that float.app um is like a platform that's not censorship and can't be controlled. And so I think a bunch of them are just going to naturally spring up over time um, to try to get around the the censorship. But in the meantime, yeah, they're definitely trying to, to control information. They can't do it too overtly. They can't just say, Hey, if you say you don't like cops, we're going to throw you in a cage, but they can use technology, you know, to its utmost limits to try to spread their own message and, and squelch anything they don't like. Jeez, well, I'm worried about Julian Assange. I mean, I consider that man, he's a person who's actually like trying to be a, what a real journalist is, and I can't believe what they're doing to him, and I'm wondering yeah. if they're going to make other examples of this stuff like that. So I don't know, Larkin. I just hope that uh, people can be remaining strong and uh, learn about your stuff. And uh, Larkin, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. It was, it was a great honor. And just tell everyone about you is that I – discovered you on activist post back in 2013 and i love watching your videos and i have to say that again when i share your videos with my family and friends you you get the your stuff gets the biggest reaction they'll actually respond about that <laughs> so it's great and i think it's wonderful because if you're doing that you're then you're causing people you're provoking people you're getting to respond again a little more about Larkin by going to a couple of different websites. One of them is attendcandles.com. That's Candles in the Dark. And the other event that he'll be appearing at, it's, I'm going to say it, an article. I can't even pronounce it. I'm, going to, I'm just going to give you the website. N-A-N-A-N-A-R-C-H-A-P-U-L-C-O.com. Larkin, again, authored several books. The Most Dangerous Superstition, author of the novel The Iron Web. You can check out his incredible podcast on ConnectPal. You go to connectpal.com, look up Larkin Rose. We'll put a link to it. Uh, Mr. Rose, thank you so much, sir. Thanks for having me. Okay, everyone. That concludes today's edition of the Out of Limits of Inner Truth. Special thanks to our featured guest, Larkin Rose. I am so happy we finally got a chance to have him on our program. And special thanks, as always, to our virtues, Miss Carrie O'Connor, Miss Lisa Casa, and Miss Constance Dallas. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth, please go to our website at outerlimitsradio.com. Until the next time we meet, my friends, I wish upon you an abundance of peace, love, and beers. Take good care, and thank you so much for listening.